Hey, as you're being seated, I walked in wearing this shirt and I heard somebody like audibly gasp, like, oh, wow. Like, look, I'm not trying to offend anybody personally, but if the shoe fits, wear it, okay? So if you're out there going, man, you're trying to tell me that I need Jesus, yes, you do. And so do the rest of us. So let's just move past that stumbling block. I'm not trying to step on toes, just affirming a reality for every single person on the face of the planet ever, except for Jesus. The rest of us need Jesus, okay? And Jesus is better. See that transition? Yeah, it's a little forced, but whatever. I was watching the end of a, a golf tournament today, and uh, there were six, I think six or seven playoff holes between this guy, Patrick Cantlay, and, uh, and Bryson DeChambeau. And it was crazy. It was shot for shot. And if you're not into golf, you would have been bored out of your mind. But it was entertaining. Like Bryson on this par three stuck his tee shot to within five feet, and I'm going, okay, it's over. And then Patrick stands up and just like a boss drops it three feet away from the hole, like just inside Bryson. And it goes on and on and on until finally Patrick won. But ever since Tiger had that car accident and it came out that he really was a bad dude and it just started going downhill from there, we've kind of been wondering and asking the same question that the basketball world has been asking ever since Michael Jordan left. And don't try to throw LeBron James at me because I will, I will laugh at that. It's, it's laughable, right? And that is who's what? Who's, who's next? The golf world is saying, hey, who's the next Tiger Woods? And the basketball world is, is saying, who's the next Michael Jordan? And those are always going to be the standards. And they're still the standards today, even though there have been some pretty great ones that have come since then. Some pretty spectacular athletes that have arisen since then. They haven't measured up to that standard, to being that guy. Well, in first century Israel, around the time of Christ and then during the time of the early church, the Jewish community especially was asking a question about who's next, but they were asking about the question, who's the next Moses? That's what they wanted to know. See, Moses had been the one that, that God had chosen to be his messenger, his apostle, to go to Pharaoh and say to Pharaoh, hey, let my people go, right? God's people were in slavery in Egypt, and Moses was the one that God chose to go with this message of deliverance and freedom. Moses had been the one to deliver the, the law to the people of Israel at Mount Sinai there in the wilderness. God chose to, to deliver it to Moses specifically there. Moses had been the one that was leading them through the wilderness wanderings. He was the one representing the Lord and going in, in, and mediating between Israel and the Lord during the, the wilderness wanderings. Moses, in fact, had been the one during that time when Israel had grumbled and complained against God and God had said, okay, Moses, back up because I'm about to wipe everybody out and I'm going to start over with you. Moses had been the one to be a high priest of sorts by going in between God and the people and saying, hey, God, will you please pardon their sin, pardon their iniquity, forgive them for what they've done in rebelling against you. See, Moses was one of the greatest leaders that Israel had ever known. And yet Deuteronomy 18 says that God was going to provide another Moses, a better Moses. Where God said in Deuteronomy 18, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you. Except this was going to be a, a better Moses. And so from that point forward, everybody was wondering, who's the next Moses? Well, Jesus comes on the scene. And it wasn't right away that people realized and understood that this was who the next Moses was. This was the one that was being prophesied about back in Deuteronomy 18. It's not as though everybody was finally like, oh, okay, here's the guy. We need to follow him. But by the time that the, the writer of Hebrews gets around to writing in the, the, the time of the early church here, again, probably prior to the destruction of the temple in 70 AD, so we're within 30 to 40 years of the death of Christ, 
they had come to the realization through God's revelation that Jesus was this better prophet. Jesus was this greater Moses. And as the writer of Hebrews is trying to lay out that Jesus is better than anyone and anything, he's moved from the angels now to focus on Jesus being better than Moses. So grab your Bibles and open up to Hebrews chapter 3, and we're going to cover the whole chapter. Last week we had four verses, this week the whole chapter. That's why you show up to the bridge, because you never know, right? It could be four verses, one verse could be, what, 19 today? Yeah, 19. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6, it says, Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. For every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, And we are his house, if indeed we hold fast our confidence and are boasting in our hope. Stop there for just a moment. So this concept is introduced, and he starts, therefore. You remember last week we focused on Jesus as the high priest, that he's the one that intercedes between God and us, that pleads his blood between God and us, and that it forever changes our perspective on our life and our death and on what we're supposed to be doing here. And now he goes into this argument. He says, therefore, since Jesus is that, we need to understand that he's also a superior apostle and high priest. He's, he's better than Moses. But it begins in verse 1 with this command that is really kind of a thematic command for the whole book of Hebrews, and that is this, consider Jesus. Consider Jesus. That word consider is a forceful command there. It's give careful thought and attention to Christ. Think about Jesus, not just with a passing thought of, oh yeah, there's that Jesus guy. Oh yeah, I, I grew up hearing about Jesus. Oh yeah, I've been to church before and, and when I go to church, they talk about Jesus. Oh, I, I've read my Bible from time to time. And yeah, I know it talks about Jesus. No, the author says, I want you to think on, marinate on, dwell on, live on the thoughts about Jesus. Consider Jesus. Specifically, he wants you to consider Jesus as he pertains to this other figure in Israelite history, Moses. We began with Jesus is better than the angels. And we talked about, if you were with us during that time, that the angels were considered to be the ones that were there mediating the law, right? That they were the one through whom God delivered the law, that they were the ones who possibly were even the ones writing the the Ten Commandments and handing the commandments over to Moses there on the top of Sinai. So he's gone from the angels now to Moses, and it's all still focused on this concept, though, of the law. And you say, well, why the law? Why such a focus there? Well, because we have to remember and put our shoes back in the context, in, the, in the, the situation of the original readers of the book of Hebrews. A lot of them were most likely Jewish converts. So that means for them and for their families and past generations, the last 1,400 to 1,500 years or so had been centered on, founded on, and focused on the law. That was their reality. That was a, a core kernel of their existence, was their relationship to the law and then through the law, their relationship to God. And in this particular situation, the the church was trying to figure out what is our ongoing relationship to the law? What should we do with the law now that Jesus is here? And they weren't alone. In fact, if you remember from Acts chapter 15, if you've read through the book of Acts, we found that the the early apostles were still struggling with this. Acts chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, 
It says this, it says, but some men came down from Judea and were teaching the brothers, unless you are circumcised according to the custom of Moses, according to the law of Moses, you aren't saved. You're not a Christian. And notice verse two, after Paul and Barnabas had no small dissension and debate with them, Paul and Barnabas and some of the others were appointed to go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about the question. So you had some people come in and say, look, you need to obey the law if you really want to be a Christian. You need to be, they were talking about circumcision with the men there. You need to follow that custom. And if you don't, you're not really a Christian. And Paul was saying, whoa, 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 whoa. Hey, Barnabas and I disagree with that. We don't think that that's actually true. And so you need to submit to apostolic authority on this. You don't have to, to, to submit to the Old Testament law anymore in that sense because Jesus came to fulfill the law. He's the fulfillment. We're not justified by the law, right? Paul had a few things to say about that in Galatians and Romans and other places. Well, it says no small dissension arose. That's their way of saying, dude, we had it out. Like it got intense. It got passionate here. And so, so passionate was this and so ambiguous was this at the time for these people who had lived by the law for thousands of years that finally they said, you know what? We got to go seek outside help. We can't even settle this, which is Paul and Barnabas. So they go to Jerusalem. They go to where James, the half-brother of Jesus, was presiding over the church there in Jerusalem. And they go and they, they meet with the other apostles to have this council there to say, what do we do about the law? And then an even broader question, what about when somebody who's not a Jew is saved? What's their obligation to the law? And they, they hand down instructions from there that are outside the scope of what we're considering tonight. But just I want you to understand that, that the Christian's relationship to the law was a big deal, a, a much bigger deal than it is for you and I today. And that's part of that, that disconnect, that tension that exists for us between you and I sitting here in the year 2021 and the original recipients of the letter to the book of, uh, the letter of, of Hebrews who were receiving this within 30 or 40 years of Jesus dying on the cross, still trying to figure out this whole Christianity thing, right? And so they're tempted, and they're, they're tempted to look back to the law to either want to return to Judaism because it would have helped them escape persecution or they're tempted to look at the law as you and I are still tempted to do today and to think, man, if I'm obedient enough, then God will love me. And that's what the writer of Hebrews was beginning to combat in battles. He was saying, look, Jesus is better than these things. And he's identified two key players in the giving of the law, the angels and Moses now. And he's right out of the gate saying, hey, you guys need to remember that Jesus is better. He's better than the angels and he's better than Moses. Consider Jesus. But then he goes on to describe Jesus as the apostle and high priest of our confession. The apostle and high priest of our confession. Jesus as an apostle. Well, let's talk about Moses first. Was, was Moses an apostle? What is an apostle? Does anybody know what that means, that word? It's a sent one. One who's sent with a message. A messenger, right? And so Moses was sent with a message. Yes, he was sent with a message to the people of Israel and to Pharaoh to say what? What did Charlton Heston say? Let my people go, right? He wanted to preach and announce this message of deliverance from slavery. That was Moses' message. Well, how about a high priest? Was, was Moses a high priest? Well, Aaron, you could argue, is the first high priest officially in that role. But did Moses intercede between the Israelites and God and plead for God's forgiveness between the, the people of Israel and, and, and God? Did Mo Moses go and, and confess the sins of Israel before the Lord and, and plead for him to be patient with them and kind towards them? Yeah. So you see in those two roles that, that Moses fulfilled those in his own right, and yet Jesus is, is better. Jesus is the better apostle because his revelation was better. You remember the beginning of the book of Hebrews. Long ago, at many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets, including Moses. 
But in these last days, he's spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also he created the world. He's the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. So Jesus is the better apostle because the message he was sent with is a better message and he inherently is a better messenger. Well, how about Jesus as a high priest? Is he a better high priest? Yeah, see the passage that we just read last week, right? In chapter two. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. In other words, to satisfy God's wrath against the sins of the people. Is Moses, a, or is Jesus rather a better high priest than Moses was? Yes, because his sacrifice was better and just by nature of his character, he was a better high priest. See, Jesus is better. Consider Jesus, the apostle and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was also faithful in all God's house. Moses was a faithful leader. We, we look at Moses and we remember when he got angry, right? And God said, hey, Moses, speak to the rock and water's going to come out. And Moses said, what? I'm not going to speak to the rock, but what did Moses do? Moses did what? Yeah, he hit the rock out of anger. And God said, okay, Moses, because you disobeyed me, you're going to die and you're not going to be able to enter into the promised land. I've got somebody else that's going to lead Israel. And we fixate a little bit on that. But, but Moses was, he was faithful to the Lord. God commends him here and in so many other places in, in scripture. And yet what the writer is saying is, look, just as Moses was faithful in God's house, Jesus was faithful too. But, but Jesus is worthy of more glory. That's what the text goes on to say. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses. As much more glory as the builder of the house has more honor than the house itself. Again, y'all, this isn't so much a deficiency with Moses as much as it is a superiority in Jesus. Right? But this is big stuff that the author's talking about. Like if somebody showed up on the scene and somebody said, hey, this guy's better than Tiger Woods. This guy's better than Michael Jordan at basketball. You would be looking at that guy going, what? Are you kidding me? Seriously? What's his track record? Who is he? Prove it, right? And the writer is reminding us, hey, you need to remember who Jesus is. Jesus is better than Moses. Yeah, Moses was a superstar. Moses was legit. Moses was a faithful man in God's house, but Jesus is worthy of more glory. And then he uses this illustration, as much as the builder of a house is worthy of more than the house itself. Any of y'all out there who are, are fascinated or interested in architecture, you can look at a building and be in awe of that building, right? But a lot of times that's going to lead you to ask the question, what, who, who designed that, right? Who's the mind behind that? Because you want to meet the person, because you know that the person is worthy of more glory than the house. Well, God's saying the same thing here about Moses. Moses was just part of the house. In fact, later on, he's going to say, you and I, we're just part of the house, but God's the architect. Jesus is the one over the house. Jesus is the designer of it all and therefore worthy of more glory. Verse four, for every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Again, the original recipients of this letter struggling with temptation to leave behind Christianity and go back to Judaism, some of them. Why? Because they wanted to escape persecution. They didn't want to be persecuted for being believers. They didn't want to be away from Jerusalem for being a Christian. They didn't want to be away from their family and their friends and their home for being a Christian. They were done with it. They wanted to go back and they were thinking to themselves, well, maybe I can just have Jesus and the law and kind of slide in and be unnoticed. And so the writer is right out of the gate saying, no, you can't do that. Jesus is better than angels who were there to mediate the law. Jesus is better than, the, than Moses who was there to receive the law and pass on the law. Jesus is better. Don't go back is what he's arguing here. 
this is a, a little bit of a, a difficult concept for us to wrap our minds around because you sit there and you go, okay, Jesus is better than Moses. Got it. Check. Let's move on. What's the big deal? And it's because we're so far separated from this, right? But I want you to think about it this way, because here's what the reality of what he was driving at is. Whatever it is that you were trusting in before Jesus, that's what, Moses, what, what the writer is saying that Jesus is better than. Whatever it was, whether that was I, you were trusting, you were a, a good kid. I'm a good kid, so I'm going to be fine. I'm a good person, so I'm gonna, I'll be in heaven because I'm a good person. The writer would say, hey, you need to understand that that's bankruptcy and that Jesus is better than that. Or maybe you would say, I, I'm, I've been around the church my whole life, and that's what you trusted in before Christ. You just trusted that because you were born into a Christian home and grew up around Christian people that you were a Christian. And the writer's saying, no, 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 Jesus is better than that. That won't get you anywhere. That, that's, that's not the, the, the main focus here, right? Or maybe you're, what you trusted in before this was just pleasure. You were of the mindset that, hey, my life, the whole goal and purpose of my life is just to enjoy myself as much as I possibly can. And that was your life before Christ. And now maybe you're tempted to look back at that and go, man, I've had to sacrifice a lot for Jesus. Is it really worth it? And the writer would say, yes, it is worth it. So our first point tonight is this, see Jesus as the better Moses. But really, I want you to see Jesus as the better fill in the blank, whatever it was that you put your faith and your confidence and your trust in before Jesus. Whatever it is that when you are wavering, when you get uncomfortable, when the heat gets turned up on being a Christian, whatever it is that you're tempted to kind of look back over your shoulder at, Jesus is better than that. And that's what, what we have to, to, to kind of translate to get from first century uh, former Jewish believers to where you and I sit tonight in 2021. Jesus is the better Moses. Again, this picture of the house and the architect, and he continues with the picture of the house in verse 5. He says, Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. Again, the author is commending Moses, right? Just like if before Christ you were a, a religious person who showed up at church day in and day out, anytime the church was open, you were here, right? We would say, hey, you know what? That's a, that, that's a good thing. Can't save you. Hey, Moses was a faithful servant. He's not going to save you. He's not your savior, but he was faithful in what he was doing. Moses was doing well, is what the writer is saying here. And he quotes from Numbers chapter 12, verses 6 through 8. Numbers 12, 6 through 8, the Lord said, Hear my words. If there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, make myself known to him in a vision. I speak with him in a dream. Not so with my servant, Moses. He's about to say, hey, there are prophets that I will speak to in dreams and in visions and stuff. They're there. But I want you to know how amazing Moses is, is what God is saying to the people of Israel here. Because he's kind of putting them in their place because they had been grumbling against Moses. And he's like, you need to, to, to step back. Because he continues, he says, not so with my servant, Moses. He is faithful in all my house. That's what the writer of Hebrews was quoting in the verse that we just read from verse 5. But back in Numbers chapter 12, look at verse 8. Him I speak with mouth to mouth, face to face, clearly, not in riddles, and he beholds the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? See, y'all, Moses was a big deal. Moses was a big deal. Right before Michael Jordan, there was other basketball players that were good. Right? There was Magic Johnson, there was Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, there were these basketball players that were phenomenal, great athletes. Right, But then once Michael Jordan was on the scene, it wasn't as though they became less good at what they did, but Michael Jordan was so far better than any of them were that people looked at Michael and they were like, wow, he is amazing. And these guys kind of faded into the background. 
that's kind of what the author's wanting us to do with Moses. And he's saying, look, Moses was legit. Look, in the Old Testament, God spoke to, to the people of Israel and said, don't speak against Moses because Moses is unique among all the prophets there have been so far. I speak with him face to face. He beholds the form of the Lord. You need to be afraid of speaking against Moses. And yet, in our passage, the writer says Jesus is better than Moses. Why? Well, because he knew this prophecy. I alluded to it earlier from Deuteronomy chapter 18. Deuteronomy 18, 17 through 18. And the Lord said to me, they are right in what they have spoken. I will raise up for them a prophet like you. He's speaking to Moses. I'm going to raise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth and he shall speak to them all that I command him. This is a messianic prophecy. This is looking forward to the coming of Jesus, to Jesus being the realization of the better prophet, the better prophet yet to come. And the writer of Hebrews is saying he's here and it's Jesus. Moses was faithful as a servant in all God's house, but look at verse six. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. Who holds a higher rank in a household, a son or a servant? A son, right? In fact, we've already covered that in Hebrews chapter one. For to which of the angels did God ever say, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Or again, I will be to him a father, he shall be to me a son. And again, when he brings the firstborn into the world, he says, let all God's angels worship him. He's showing that Jesus is better than the angels because Jesus has the name and the title of what? Son. And now he's hearkening back to that by contrasting Jesus with Moses saying, yeah, Moses was a faithful servant, but Jesus is the faithful son. See, when God needed to free Israel from slavery to Egypt, he sent a servant. But when God needed to free you and I from slavery to sin, he sent his son. It's an argument from the lesser to the greater. Yeah, Moses was no slouch, but Jesus is far better. Whatever you trusted in before this, from a world standpoint, they may have looked at that and gone, yeah, that's, that's good. Live your life that way. That's great. You're a good person. You've got all your ducks in order. But man, now that you know Jesus, you know that what, living for Christ is, is far better than living for whatever it was before that you were living for. Again, we're going to struggle with this because we're so far removed from this reliance upon the law and this relationship to Moses and the Old Testament figures. But I want to try to help us out here a little bit more. Because again, Jesus is the better what? Jesus is the better apostle, apostle and the better high priest. So let's think about that a little bit from the standpoint of Jesus' message. Jesus' message is better than, right? What are some things that we might want a, a hopeful message from? How about politicians? You know, Jesus, is a, is, his message of deliverance and salvation is better than a politician in their message. We live in a state that's undergoing a recall right now, and I'm not going to ask you where you land on that. I know probably where 99.9% .9 of you land on that. But here's the deal, y'all. Regardless of the outcome of that, Jesus is better than whoever's going to sit in that governor's office. Far more. And if your hope is in the governor getting out of the office and a new governor getting in, you've got the wrong hope. Jesus is better. His message is better far better than a politician. How about a, a military leader? Right now, we, our country longs for that, for a strong leader to step up and say that what happened in Afghanistan this last week, these last two weeks here, is wrong, and it is wrong, horrifically wrong. And what is going on over there and the deaths that are going on over there and the, the atrocities that are being carried out over there is an embarrassment to our nation. And so we long to have a strong military leader, somebody with a backbone to stand up and say, we're not going to put up with this. We're not going to take this. We're going to go stand up for the weak and the oppressed, and we're going to go right the wrongs that have been done against us and our people and also the people over there that are 
that are, that are powerless to stand up against these forces. We long for that. But y'all, Jesus' message is better than that. Better than that. An infinite amount better than that. How about independence? Some of you are sitting out there and you're going, man, I, I can't wait until I finally am able to leave home. I can't wait until I'm finally out on my own. I can't wait until I can make decisions for myself. I can't wait until whatever it is about being independent, being on your own, and you're thinking, man, when that happens, oh, man, that's going to be awesome. That's going to be real freedom. Guys, the message of freedom that Jesus brings is so much better than that. So much better than that. Fulfillment of your dreams or your ambitions. Some of you are out there thinking, man, once I get through college, once I get my job, once I get into this position, once I get this promotion, then everything's going to be great and all my dreams and all my ambitions are going to come true and it's going to be satisfying. Well, I got news for you. That satisfaction is going to be momentary until you're on to another dream, another ambition, another want, another desire. There's a whole book of the Bible written about it. It's called Ecclesiastes. You know, Jesus is better than all of your dreams and ambitions being fulfilled. His message is better that. Peace with the world, right? Some of y'all are in hostile work environments, in hostile classrooms. You're in a place, I was talking to my son today, this morning, driving home from, from church. He's going over to La Paz Middle School, and he said, Dad, there's so much profanity at La Paz, it's not even funny. Which, by the way, is just a sidebar, guys. If, if profanity marks your speech, please stop. I took my wife out for our anniversary dinner the other night. We were sitting at a table at a nice restaurant, and there was two grown men using the F word, every other word at the table next to us. And I just sat there, and I thought, what in the world? And my 12-year-old is in a place where that's, that's an adjective, whether it's good or bad. And I, I long for him not to have to put up with that, not to have to deal with that, not to have to listen to that. And yet I know that it's not just there. I can't run from that. And he knows that too. I said, Josh, man, I'm sorry that you have to put up with that. And he looked back at me. He said, yeah, dad, but I, I know if it's not there, it's going to be somewhere else. And I know you guys are in places where it may not be that, but maybe it's something else. Maybe it's you're getting pressure to, to embrace a certain viewpoint on, on something or use these pronouns or those pronouns or this identity or that identity. And here's, here's the thing, guys. I want you to know that even if all that went away and you didn't have Jesus, Jesus is better than you having, than, than, than all of that happening. Jesus is better than peace with the world. It's better to have Jesus and be at odds with this world and, and long for this world to be better than it is than to be at home with this world and not have Jesus. But he's not just a better apostle, he's the better high priest too, which means that his intercession is better. His intercession was better than Moses' intercession because Moses' intercession, Moses had a problem because Moses needed somebody to intercede for himself because Moses was a, a sinner too, right? Jesus is the perfect high priest, the sinless high priest. But his intercession is better than our intercession too, right? His intercession is better than good works. If you think, man, I'm at odds with God, so if I'm just a good enough person, then we'll be, we'll be kosher, we'll be copacetic. It's not going to happen. You can't be good enough for God to accept you. Good works is a, a, a lousy high priest. Maybe just empty profession you think that, that your high priest is your words that one time that you prayed a prayer or that you raised your hand or that you walked an aisle, but then 
you know what, the rest of your life, when you're not at church, it, you, you don't look any different from the world around you, and you are marked by the works of the flesh far more than the works of the Spirit. Well, then, guys, that, that, that moment that you point back in time and say, yeah, but I prayed a prayer, that's, that's a lousy high priest. Jesus is a better high priest than that. Church attendance. Maybe you think, man, I'm good with God because I've, I've been in church from the time I was born. I was born in the baptismal tank. Like it happened, it was weird, but I was there from day one and I, I never left. I was just, I've lived here. There's a bed for me behind Pastor Mike's office. I just sleep here. That's not gonna save you. That's lousy intercession and super creepy, so don't do that, okay? <laughs> and then finally, your intercession. Look, guys, you need Jesus to, to mediate between God and you. You need him to be the one that stepped between you and the wrath of God when he died on the cross for your sins. You can't intercede for yourself. You've got no righteousness to plead. I've got no righteousness to plead. Hence the shirt. We all need Jesus. He's better than. There's no one better coming. There's no better alternative. Jesus is the better Moses. Verse 7, therefore, because of that, verse 7, as the Holy Spirit says, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Okay, what's going on? Well, because Jesus is the better Moses, he's saying, look, you need to understand that ignoring Jesus is going to come with consequences because let's go back and realize what happened to the generation that ignored Moses. The ones that ignored Moses' message and Moses' intercession. And that's what he's talking about in those verses here. He's recounting and rehearsing for us the history of Israel when they were in the wilderness grumbling and complaining against God, provoking him, as the text says, to the point where it says that God swore in his wrath. You, you never want God to swear in your wrath at you. That's not a good situation, right? And so God swore in his wrath that they would, what, never enter his rest. In that generation, what, they, they died in the wilderness for their grumbling and their complaining against the Lord. So we need to be careful not to be like them. And he says in the second half of verse 6, if you'll back up one verse, he says, we are his house. Remember, Moses is the house. He's not the architect. Well, you and I are also part of that same house that Jesus is the one over. He's the one building us, to, to borrow from Paul, from the, the imagery that he uses there in the book of Ephesians, as we are being built together as a spiritual household for the Lord, right? We are his house. Jesus is the architect, but now he gives this caveat. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. What does that mean? Well, let's do a little survey of this concept of our confidence and boasting in hope. Ephesians 3, 11 through 12. This was according to the eternal purpose that he has realized in Christ Jesus, our Lord, in whom, in Christ, we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So we have a confidence to what? Approach the Lord through Jesus. We have a, a confidence to, to lean into our relationship with God through Jesus. How about the book of Hebrews, though? We talk about this quite a bit in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews 4, 16. Let us then with confidence, there's that word, right? Hold fast to your confidence. Let us with confidence do what? Draw near to the throne of grace that we might receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And that confidence comes right before that through the ministry of Jesus as our high priest. We need to hold fast to this confidence, lean into this relationship with the Lord. Hebrews 10, 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, okay, 
And then he goes on. But there's the, the, the point that, part that we're focused on there. We have a confidence to enter the holy of holies is what he's saying there. We have confidence to come before the presence of God because of Jesus. And then how about one more? Two more. Sorry, I lied. Hebrews 6, 11, And we desire each of you to show the same earnestness and to have the same full assurance of hope until the end. So we're holding fast to our confidence and boasting in our hope. Well, what hope? The hope that we will one day go to be with the Lord. The hope that this world is not our home. The hope that this is not all there is. But that when we die, we will go to be with the Lord. We need to hold fast to this confidence of our relationship with the Lord. And we need to hold fast to our hope as well. One more for real this time. Hebrews 10, 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for he who promised is faithful. Y'all, there's all the security in the world to be found for you if you are in Christ, right? You will persevere. You will endure. You will hold fast your confidence and your boasting. But here's what we need to understand. That confidence comes through a daily pursuit of your relationship with Jesus. That, that confidence is not just a, a static, abiding, never changing, no matter what your life looks like kind of confidence. If you are entertaining sin in your life and you have unrepentant sin in your life and your confidence is wavering, well, there's a reason, right? But if you have a, a close walk with the Lord right now and you feel like, man, I, I feel, I, yeah, I've been in the valleys, but right now I feel like I'm on a mountaintop with the Lord. I feel like things are good, that this is a good season of my relationship with Christ, then your confidence in your standing with Christ is probably pretty high right now. And that's what he's talking about here. Look, we are his house if we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. That eternal security that you have is realized through your daily holding fast, holding on, persevering, enduring, not wavering, not walking away. So our second point tonight is this. Make sure you stay the course. Make sure you stay the course. Don't drift like Israel did, right? Jesus is better than Moses. Man, if the wilderness generation died off, because they grumbled against Moses. How much worse is it going to be for us if we reject Jesus? When we're on our walk as a family, our twins, Sam and John, are, 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 they're wild cards. Um, you never quite know what they're thinking, especially Sam. Sam rage runs, right? So if you've seen Dude Perfect and the Rage Monster, Sam is a, a huge fan. And so um, we'll be out for our family walk, and he'll literally stop and he'll go... <laughs> and then he just screams and runs, right? And we, it's like, oh, well, there's Sam. Everyone else around us is like, what is going on with that child? He's demon-possessed. It's like, no, he's rage-running. Dude, perfect, check it out. It's fine. But he's a wild card. But as we're walking, I mean, Amanda and I are constantly going, guys, stay near us. Stay with us. Don't go too far ahead. Don't drift. Don't step off the sidewalk. In fact, we've explained it. If you ask our kids, what happens when you run out in the street? They will tell you this you will get smushed by a car and you will be a pancake. That's what we have told them, okay? So they know the dangers because we're warning them not to drift from us because we know what's safe. What's safe is to be with us, to stay with us, to follow us, to endure, to persevere, to stay the course because we know the dangers of them drifting. Well, the writer of Hebrews knows the dangers of the church drifting from Jesus, drifting from his message, drifting from his intercession, not staying the course, wanting to flirt with other things out there. And so he warns them, don't do that. Stay the course. Verse eight, he says, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. Don't become callous to the Lord. Verse nine, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. 
they saw God attest to his power and his majesty and his grandeur. I mean, if freeing them from Israel wasn't enough, or from Egypt wasn't enough, with all the plagues and everything else, if that wasn't enough, and then the whole parting of the Red Sea thing wasn't enough, and then the whole providing manna for them wasn't enough, if, if all of that wasn't enough, and they were grumbling and complaining against that, man, how much more do you and I have since we've got this right here with us? And so he's saying, hey, be careful. Don't harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion where they put God to the test. And even though they had seen his works for 40 years, which led to what? Verse 11, him swearing in his wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Christian, you and I have a daily need to stay the course, which means we have to daily remind ourselves of the gospel. Daily, remind yourself that Jesus is better. Daily, take a minute to check yourself to keep yourself from falling away. And not just once a day, as many times as it takes to remind your stubborn flesh that Jesus is better. We need to do that, y'all. Israel was the people of God. They thought that they were good. They thought that they were fine. They were thinking, you know what? God freed us from Egypt and slavery there with Pharaoh, and we did the whole walking through the Red Sea thing, and he's given us manna. We even grumbled and gave us some birds to eat. I mean, this is pretty sweet. We're doing all right for ourselves. We've got this cat Moses leading us. We're going to the promised land. Milk and honey is waiting for us. We are Israel. We're God's people. Look out because we're on the move, right? They're, they're boasting their confidence is there in their identity as just being part of the people of God. Well, then they get uncomfortable and they don't like that. So they grumble against God. And God's like, you think you're anything? I'm going to wipe out an entire generation and just start over. Church, God could do the same thing with us. Look, the gates of hell are not going to prevail against God's church, but it doesn't mean that he's going to use this version of the church to continue. If God wants to turn us upside down, shake us out and do away with us and raise up an entire new generation of Christians that are going to come and lead the charge with the church, he's going to do it. So let's not get prideful or arrogant thinking that we're right because we've got the narrow corner on all of this truth and look at us, we're in this building with air conditioning and we live in Orange County and all this jazz and think that somehow God's going to be impressed with us enough to think, well, I better make sure that I'm nice to them because I need them. God doesn't need us, y'all. Stay the course. Stay the course. If you're in Christ, will you fall away? No. But just like when you go bowling and you put up the bumpers, Spencer, I'm looking at you, and you put up the bumpers on the bowling alley and you bowl, right? Those bumpers are there to do what? Make sure that your ball doesn't go in the gutter. Well, y'all, the warning passages in the book of Hebrews are those bumpers in your life. You're not going to go in the gutter if you're in Christ. But sometimes it's those warning passages that bump you back on course. And this is one of those warning passages. Do not fall away. Y'all, it's a popular thing, unfortunately, in, I don't even know what to call it. I don't want to call it the world of Christianity because it's not the former world of Christianity today to have these deconversion stories. And basically, if, if you're not sure what is a deconversion story, what does that look like, what does it mean, um, here's what it boils down to. If you want to know the, the process of deconverting, I don't want any of you to do it, but I'm just going to tell you what it, what it looks like. It means that you bash the church and call her a lot of names like legalistic and oppressive, and you paint the church as being negative. And then after that, you make yourself out to be the victim of these legalistic, oppressive, negative church leaders. 
and you make it look like they're just out to, to quench your creative creativity, and you're just out for the truth, and, and you're the victim in all this, and the church is just the big bad bully. And then after that, you then announce your departure from the church in a public venue, usually on social media, where, you know, so many people have an opportunity to actually respond and engage you in healthy conversation. Look, some of you in this room, if not most of you in this room, are going to get married. And when you get married, you are going to look at your spouse. Men, you're going to look at your wife. Ladies, you're going to look at your husband. And you will understand that they are not perfect. However, you're going to love them no matter what. You're going to look past flaws to see the beauty. You're going to let go of the offense here, the offense there, because you love that person so much and you can't imagine spending your life with anyone else but them. You're going to think, man, they are my favorite person in the world to be with. And you're also going to understand, man, for, for all those times that you look at them and go, oh, yeah, I, I realize they're not perfect, that they look at you, men, probably especially for us, 10 times more than that and go, yeah, oh, they're not perfect. But you stay the course, you persevere, and you endure. Why? Because you are committed to one another and because you love one another. Y'all, in today's cultural context, there are so many people that are so eager to point out the flaws of the church. Say, look how imperfect the church is. The church is just a bunch of judgmental people. I don't want to be around them. And they conclude that the flaws must not just be in the church, but also in Jesus. Or they conclude that every church has those same flaws, and therefore uh, no church is going to be good enough, so they might as well leave the whole thing. And this mindset has been building for a while. There's nothing new under the sun. But I remember a guy named Jeff Jefferson Bethke, if you've heard of him, wrote a book a while ago that came out that it says, Jesus is greater than religion. And this was on the heels of a video that he released that was entitled, Why I Hate Religion But Love Jesus. And that video, y'all, has been watched over 35 million, or almost, rather, 35 million times. 34.9 some odd change million times. And look, it's not that what Bethke's message is is necessarily all bad. He makes some good points there. And he's not arguing that the church needs to go away or that the church needs to be abolished. He's not making that suggestion. But the mindset that's introduced with that and that begins to be entertained by that is, man, I'm the judge over the bride of Christ. That, it's, that, that Christianity and Jesus is about me. And it's about what I want. And man, if, if I bump into something that I don't like or I don't agree with or my autonomy is infringed upon, well, then I'm out. And the problem is the church, not me. I don't know if you guys know who this individual in the green headband is there. Let me zoom in a little bit there for you to get a better picture. Does anybody know who that is? It's a guy by the name of Josh Harris. Wrote a book that was super popular in the 90s that every guy hated because of the title, which was I Kiss Dating Goodbye. Every time you saw a girl that you thought was cute pick up that book, you just, oh, man. No, but Josh Harris was kind of the, the, the wonder boy of evangelical Christianity for a long time. Was part of C.J. Mahaney's church, Sovereign Grace churches and all that. Became the senior pastor of, of one of their flagship churches. They eventually left that denomination. 
but I think it was about a year ago or so that Harris announced on Instagram that he and his wife were getting a divorce. And then it was like a week or so later he announced that he had deconverted from Christianity. It was shocking. It was shocking. Um, I mean, I wasn't a Harris follower or disciple necessarily, but I knew who he was. I knew the circles he ran in. And this was a guy that was hanging out and speaking at you know, some of the major conferences that you guys have heard of before, Gospel Coalition, things like that. And now he's, he's done with it all. And I want you to hear what he says. He says this, sometimes people talk about deconstruction. He's talking about his process here. As though it's this beautiful, perfectly guided process of this Lego castle that you step by step take off one Lego at a time and you deconstruct it. He says some people might have that experience. My experience was circumstances coming along and just, his words here, stomping the hell out of my Lego castle. You know, just my own failure and things falling apart and relationships being broken, and I'm just trying to pick up the pieces. Notice how inward the focus is right now. It gets worse. He says, but I don't want anybody telling me, well, you've got to build the castle just like this. I'm just like, he goes on, please leave me alone and let me try to figure out some of these things on my own. Because the way that I've been living, here's his, you want to know that Josh Harris is God's? Here they are for you. The way that I've been living has not led to life and expansion and love. I don't even know what that means. And clearly he doesn't either because he has no clue what he's doing right now. But it's not led to life and expansion and love. But here's the deal. Our culture is going to hear that and go, oh, mm, mm. heart emoji, love on Instagram, share. They're going to be like, this, this hits me in the feels. This is so good. This is so deep. And you're going to go, what does that mean? And they're going to go, I, I, it's just so true. He says it's, it's led to a narrower and narrower controlling fearful outlook. And I know that doesn't represent all Christians, but it represented the brand of Christianity that completely shaped me for so long. Here's the problem, Josh. The, the job that you and I have is not to ask the question, well, does this make me happy? Does this make me feel expansion in life? I don't, what, what? Does this make me feel the loves in my life? That's not our job, y'all. At the end of the day, our job is to ask the question, is it biblical? Is it biblical? Is it the message of Jesus? Is it the best message, the message that's better than Moses' message? Is it the message that's grace upon grace, according to John 1? Is it the message that's breathed out by God that's useful for profitable and for teaching and for reproof and correction, for training and righteousness, so that we can be equipped and useful for every good work? Josh, is it in accordance with the word of Christ, the word of hope? Does it fit with a narrative that, that finds me in the end in the new heavens and the new earth? If it does, bring it on, man. Bring it on. Well, what if that means that my life is uncomfortable? Hello? Consider Jesus who suffered to leave you an example. It's not like Jesus came and stayed in five-star hotels while he was here on earth and then peaced out and went back to heaven. It was like, you guys are going to suffer. Consider the apostles. They died for their faith.
Man, we, we live in this ridiculous society, and it's just plaguing this generation so much that it's all about autonomy. Don't tell me how to think or what I should believe or how I should feel. And you guys think that, man, I'm, I, look at me. I'm autonomous. I'm good to go because I'm throwing off the strictures of Christianity, and I don't want anything to do with Jesus or the church anymore. And look at me, and, and let me, you should applaud me because I'm a, I'm a he, she, z, elemental, p, q, r, s, t, u, v, w, x, y, z. And you should call me by that pronoun or else I'm going to sue you or threaten to sue you even though I have no clue what the law is on this, right? That's our culture and society. And our world lives in that and they're championing that, thinking that you're, they're unique all the while. What they are is on the broad path that leads to eternal damnation and destruction, just like everybody else. There's not a shred of individuality in the world. You want to be unique? Get on the narrow path. Swim upstream against the current of this world. And we stand and we applaud these people and we call them heroes and that's just garbage. Christian, stay the course. Is the church perfect? No, but neither are you. And neither am I. So y'all, when you encounter flaws in the church... Or see something more attractive that you think in the world? Y'all, don't throw away your confidence and your hope that the writer's talking about here. Don't look back to Egypt. When you hear someone criticize the church, don't join in and just keep your own personal criticisms on top of that. Don't look back to Egypt. When you feel the tension of walking the narrow path in the midst of the broad path that, that leads to destruction, don't give up to make things easier. Don't look back to Egypt. And y'all, when you are hurt by the church, and let me just tell you, you will be hurt by the church. I've been hurt by the church. Why? Because we are sinners living together. But let me just encourage you, plead with you, beg you, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Don't look back to Egypt. Again, deconversion, deconstruction, yeah. Charles Spurgeon preached a sermon called The Dearest Place. And in it, he talks about the church, and he says this. He says, give yourself to the church. You that are members of the church, I have not found it perfect, and I hope that you feel almost glad that you have not. If I had ever joined a church or if I had never joined a church, rather, till I had found one that was perfect, I would never have joined one at all. And the moment I did join it, if I had found one, I should have spoiled it, for it would not have been a perfect church after I had become a member of it. He goes on. Still, imperfect as it is, it is the dearest place on earth to us. As I have already said, the church is faulty, but that is no excuse for your not joining it. If you are the Lord's, nor need your own faults keep you back, for the church is not an institution for perfect people, but a sanctuary for sinners saved by grace, who though they are saved are still sinners and need all the help they can derive from the sympathy and guidance of their fellow believers. The church is the nursery for God's weak children, where they are nourished and grow strong. It is the fold for Christ's sheep, the home for Christ's family. Make sure you stay the course. Jump down to verse 16 in chapter 3 of Hebrews. 
He says, for who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? The Lord provoked. Was it not with those who sinned and whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. Christian, do not let that be your epitaph. Unable to enter because of unbelief. Don't fail to enter God's rest. Stay the course. But back up in verse 12. He says, take care, brothers, lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another, encourage one another, extol one another every day, as long as it is still called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. There's that call to endure again. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as they did in the rebellion. You guys saw I made a, a shift in the last point where I started to really emphasize the church a lot there towards the end. And here's the reason, because of where he goes now. Y'all, if we're going to stay the course, we need the church. The writer of Hebrews understood that. If we're not going to be like Israel, we need one another. And that's why he says, take care lest there be in any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart to lead you to fall away from the living God. Exhort one another. We need each other. If you were there this morning or this weekend for the sermons, that's what he was talking about. We need community. We need to be living in relationship with one another. And the writer of Hebrews here in chapter 3 was making that same point. Our final point tonight is this. Help each other stay the course. Point number two is, hey, make sure you stay the course. Point number three is this. Make sure you're helping one another stay the course. And in turn, being helped. Take care. Be on guard. Watch out, he's saying. Lest... There being any one of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. In other words, don't be, don't be self-deceived that everything's fine. And wake up one day and realize that you never really bought into any of it to begin with. 1 Corinthians 10, 6 through 11 says this. Now these things took place as examples for us. He's talking about the Old Testament events. He's talking about the things that we've been talking about tonight. The Old Testament Israelite experience. They took place as examples for us in order that we might not desire evil as they did. Do not be idolaters as some of them were, as it was written. The people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. We must not indulge in sexual immorality as some of them did, and 23,000 fell in a single day. We must not put Christ to the test as some of them did and were destroyed by serpents, nor grumble as some of them did and were destroyed by the destroyer. Now these things happened to them as an example, but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's the writer of Hebrews point. He's saying, don't be like Israel, stay the course. And if you're gonna stay the course, you need one another to help you do that in that process. Y'all, there's an inherent danger in flirting with the gospel without ever committing to it fully. And just liking to be around the gospel, but not really wanting to be all in. And the writer of Hebrews is going to get even harder than this on this. We're going to get to chapter 6. And he's going to give this statement in chapter 6 where he's going to say that it's impossible for some to be saved after they've been close to the, the Christian faith for a period of time and then walked away from it. Which is Romans 1. God turned them over. And I'm just telling you guys, 
we need to be careful that there's not an evil, unbelieving heart in any one of us. And that begins individually. For you to make sure that you are all in with Jesus. Because Peter writes this, and it's pretty frightening. He says, for if after they have escaped the defilements of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. In other words, they have heard about the gospel. They've been exposed to the teachings of Jesus. They are then again entangled in them and overcome. He says, the last state is worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than after knowing it to turn back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. He's not talking about losing salvation. He's talking about flirting with Jesus but never committing to Jesus. Having one foot in the world and one foot in the church the whole time and then God finally going, you know what, why don't you just go for the world? If that's what you want, take the world and turning us over. Guys, we need to, to make sure we don't have an evil, unbelieving heart in any one of us. Verse 13, but instead, exhort one another every day as long as it is called today. So not only do you need to look inward, but you also need to look next to you, across the table from you, at your brothers and sisters in this room and say, I want to make sure that nobody else in this room has an evil, unbelieving heart. Well, what does an evil, unbelieving heart look like? Well, it manifests itself through fleshly living and worldly living, doesn't it? So how do you know if you, do, you have an evil, unbelieving heart? Well, examine your life. What marks your life? When you see the, the, the fruit of the flesh in your life, weed it out. Get rid of it, right? Is this going to be consistent perfection for you? No, not at all. Not for any of us, myself included in that. But hey, we need to be about guarding against any of that beginning to creep into our life so that we see eventually more fruit of the flesh than we do fruit of the Spirit. No, to guard against an evil, unbelieving heart is to make sure that we are cultivating a heart that is, is plowed with the word of God so that the fruit will be born that is spiritual fruit, not fleshly fruit. And it's the same thing with your brothers and sisters in Christ. It's knowing them well enough that you can see in their life whether or not they're walking with the Lord. And that doesn't mean that you're going to come at them and smack them in the face with the Bible and be like, clearly you're not saved because you just said this or did this or thought this, right? That's, that's not what we're talking about. But we are talking about coming alongside saying, hey, I'm concerned for your status with with Christ, or I'm concerned about what I'm seeing in your life right now because you profess to be a believer. And man, I've seen positive fruit in your life, but I'm seeing this over here right now, and I'm concerned about this. We need to be doing that. One author commenting on this verse put it this way, personal concern that is merely introspective and introverted, in other words, it's all about just me, he says, is both selfish and unhealthy. We're saved and put into a body of Christ, into a family that we need to be concerned about each other. So my question for you tonight is this. Who do you know well enough to know when they're struggling spiritually? And it's not going to be everybody in this room. There's no way, right? In fact, let me just tell you this right now. Guys and gals, the answer to that question, guys should be another guy. Ladies should be another lady. Until you are married, let me reiterate that. Until you are married, your accountability partner does not need to be a member of the opposite sex. That includes your mama. You need to have men, men in your life that you're confiding and sharing with, opening up to, who are speaking truth in your life, who know you well enough to call you out when you need to be called out. Ladies, you need to have ladies involved in your life who know you, know where your struggles are, know where your sins are, who are willing to come alongside you and speak truth in your life. Why? Because they love you. But that is not a job for a member of the opposite sex until you are married. Not only who do you know, but, but who knows you that well? 
to call you out when you're struggling that way. And here's the deal. We have to have a constant vigilance over this. That's why he says, exhort one another every day as long as it's still called a day. Why? Because the world, sin, flesh, no days off. No days off. There's no weekends with sanctification. Sin doesn't take a day off. Devil, demons, don't take a day off. Your flesh doesn't take a day off, which means you can't take a day off which means we can't take a day off. You can't, there, there is no vacation, spiritually speaking. Can I just get away and not have to, to, to work right now? No, no. That's why Paul said, I discipline my body, I make it my slave. Right, that's why Paul in, in 2 Timothy chapter four, towards the end of his life was like, dude, I'm, I'm being poured out as a drink offering. He's like, I'm done, man. Phone it in. I'm gone. I'm exhausted. I'm worn out. And there's the crown of glory waiting for me. Send me home. Bring on the executioner. I'm ready to go, right? That's, that's where Paul's at. In fact, he's there in Philippians as well. Because he, he gets it. Man, this, this life that we live is exhausting. That should be for us as Christians. Because we can't take a day off. And here's the deal. The other thing that we need to pay attention to is the fact that it's not as though sin comes waving a giant neon sign that says, hey, I'm sinful. Hey, hey, if you do this, then it's going to cause a problem between you and God. But you should do it anyways. No, what does it say there? Make sure that none of you may be hardened by the what of sin, the deceitfulness of sin. Let's talk about that concept for a second. How about these people up on the screen here? Do you think they regretted their sins in the aftermath? I mean, when Satan came in to Eve, right? He wasn't like, hey, Eve, I've got a proposition with you that's going to screw up the whole world forever. No, no, no. Hear me out. This apple is super good. You're going to really like it. But everybody's going to have some words with you when they get to heaven someday. Because, yeah. No, right? He came and he offered the apple. He offered the, whatever the fruit was. And he said, isn't this good? You're going to be like God. You're going to know good from evil. This is going to be good for you, Eve. It's only in the aftermath that she looked back and saw the deceitfulness of sin. And Adam looked back and saw the deceitfulness of sin. And I better, guys, I, as they're walking away from the garden after God banishes them, right? And then imagine the conversation that they're having. Or, or how about Cain after he kills his brother? Or Moses, after he hits the rock and God says, hey, Moses, you're not going to go into the promised land. Or how about David after a sin with Bathsheba and his child from that sinful union dies? How about Peter after denying Christ three times? How about Paul? You don't feel like there was a... a pang of regret every time that he wrote, man, I'm the chief of sinners. You want to know my story? I was killing Christians. Or how about that guy, Judas? We know there was regret there. Killed himself as a result of his regret. But sin doesn't advertise that regret. It advertises satisfaction and fulfillment and joy and happiness 
That's why he says, be careful that your hearts aren't hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. And not just yours, but your brothers and sisters in this room. Guys, bond together, stand together so that sin can't get a grip. Sin can't get a foothold. Sin's going to tempt you to believe that Jesus is not enough. It's going to tempt you to believe that the pleasures of this world are better than waiting for the pleasures of the world to come. It's going to tempt you to believe, well, that's why grace exists, doesn't it? So go ahead and sin, because after all, there's the cross, and Jesus died for those sins, and so you can just be forgiven and and don't worry about it. It's no big deal. Just go ahead and sin. It's going to tempt you to believe that Jesus would be okay with it. All circumstances, Jesus would be okay with it just this one thousandth time. It's going to tempt you to believe it's not really sin. And our world's going to tempt you right along with that. It's going to tempt you to believe that you'll deal with it later. All the while, y'all, sin is pulling you away from Jesus, hardening your heart, deceiving you the whole time. You guys, you need one another in this. And I can't stress to you enough how much you need transparent relationships, men with men, ladies with ladies, so that you are not fighting by yourself. Because when you are in the echo chamber of your mind, the enemy is going to go to town on you. You need a Christian to come alongside you and love you and encourage you and pray for you and remind you of Romans 8, 1, that there's no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. You need somebody that's going to hold you accountable, somebody that's going to walk through this with you. And y'all, you need to be doing that in other people's lives too. You need to get dirty together and and get into the trenches with each other. For we have come to share in Christ, verse 14. Again, here's the, the endurance. If we hold our original confidence firm to the end, we need each other for that. To help each other stay the course. And I've got more, but I feel like I've, I've already preached for too long on this one. Let me just encourage you guys to, to think about your interactions with each other when you come in on a weekly basis. As you're thinking about this point and helping each other stay the course, how do your conversations lend toward that end? And maybe talk about that a little bit in small groups. How do your conversations actually accomplish that? What are you talking about with people? Or maybe what should you be talking about with people? Because bottom line is, some of y'all in this room need better friendships, but some of y'all in this room need to be better friends. Jesus is, is better, better than Moses, right? And look, if, if Moses was a pretty sweet guy, which he was, as we talked about earlier tonight, and yet those that grumbled against Moses, God killed in the desert and said, you're not entering my rest. Man, Jesus is here and Jesus is better than Moses. What's at stake if we drift from Jesus? We need to hold fast to Christ and we need to do that with one another in community. Let's pray together. God, we are grateful for tonight, grateful for this text, this passage. I just pray that, um, Lord, anything helpful, beneficial would just take root in our hearts. And whatever's not, God, that it would pass through one ear and out the other. But I I just ask that these small groups that are coming up would be just a a helpful venue to to talk through some of these things. God, I pray that 
any in this, this room tonight who are feeling like maybe they need to up their game as far as being a friend or up their game as far as seeking out godly friendships, I pray that you'd provide that. Lord, and even begin to shape that and provide that in these small groups that are about to happen tonight. I pray that, God, we would see that, that this, is, this is what's real, is what's happening here. What's real is our relationship with you. What's real is that we live on a battlefield in a world that's hostile towards us. This is what reality is, that the, the world of social media and the world of marketing and the world of sports and the world of entertainment and all that stuff, that's not, that's not the real world. The, the real world for us as believers is the fact that man, we are engaged in spiritual warfare and we need to be doing that together as brothers and sisters in Christ. And we need people that have our six and we need to have the six of other people and we need to be engaged actively, supporting, loving, encouraging, building up, exhorting, pressing on, pushing people towards Jesus, because that's, that, that's the, the best thing that we could do, is to spur one another on towards Jesus. God, we're grateful that Jesus came with a better message than the law. And we're thankful that Jesus came as a better high priest than Moses was, or Aaron was, or any of the, the Old Testament priests were. Lord, help us to make sure that we never drift from his message, and never turn our back on his intercession, but maintain our awareness of how much we need him and that, that you would, through that, increase our love and our affection for Jesus. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.